Amen. Because Jesus remained perfect in spite of temptation, we can go to God in prayer. And would you join me now as we do that? Oh, sovereign God, this morning we long to remember that you are in control. That no matter what takes place in this world, you are never taken by surprise. And that you are are in control and there will never be a moment that you look and recoil in shock. We are constantly bombarded by the evils of this world and its systems. But through it all, nothing that takes place is out of place. Your will is accomplished and your will is good and right and true. The evils of this world will be judged by you and it is in that that we take comfort. Especially this past week, as we have been bombarded by the sobering reality that we live in a fallen world, a world and a society that is obsessed with violence. Lord, this morning we grieve the tragic loss of life that took place in Uvalde, Texas. We mourn the lives of 21 individuals, most of which are children. Lord, you did not create the world to operate this way. And we are a society that is obsessed with violence. From the womb to the grave, we take joy in bloodshed. And it pains us as your people to see the impact that this has as it strikes at such a deep level. Lord, it is the cry of our hearts that you would come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray this morning for the survivors as well as the victims' families. Lord, they are all suffering in ways that we could not begin to imagine. We pray that they would know a peace that only you can provide. May they be comforted by the reality that you are still seated on the throne of this world and that one day you will right every wrong. We also pray for the family of Salvador Ramos. Lord, we pray that they too would know the sovereign hand that guides all of history. They are left with the guilt and the shame of this event in an especially unique way. We pray for all involved that they, that, that do not know you, that they would be gripped by the brevity of life. And Lord, may we as a country see a clear way forward. May we value life as you value life and enact policies and laws that benefit the people who live here as we long to promote your glory. Finally, we pray for ourselves. This morning, we thank you for Ryan and Kayla Johnson. We thank you for your calling and gifting him as an elder here at Mission. And as he has begun a time of rest from his professional job, we pray that he would also be rested, not only for his faithfulness in the work that you have given him there, but also here at this church. Lord, that you have placed him here uh, at this church as a blessing and a gift to us. Lord, we pray that he would have a renewed energy and passion for the mission that you have placed before him. And for Kayla and the girls also, that they would enjoy their extra time with Ryan and have a fresh vision and passion for the work that you have called him to do as they all minister here in this church. Uh, we also pray this morning for him as he brings the word. Lord, may it bring life to us and uh, just bring up, up life that, as we long for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Go ahead and have a seat. And open up your Bibles to Revelation 17. 
That's right, we've got a whole chapter today. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big nature documentary person. I'm going to lose half the audience here, I know, but it seems like most of them are about uh, animals killing animals of other species and then spending the rest of their time doing things with animals of their own species, and it's just not how I want to spend an evening. <laughs> but I do know enough about nature to remember these fish called remoras. Have you heard of these? These fish will eat the parasites off of a shark's skin and out of its mouth that would otherwise harm the shark. It cleans the shark's teeth and stuff. And in exchange, the shark protects the remora fish and these fish have suction cups, and they'll attach themselves to the shark, and the shark gives them free transportation, I guess, wherever they need to go. Now, I'm not a biologist, but I'm pretty sure that the shark could take out the fish if it wanted to. And there are documented cases where certain sharks have eaten remoras, even though they were benefiting from them. This symbiotic, yet one-sided relationship is a great illustration of our text today. So let's read it. Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, 
and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. If you're taking notes, you can write down the title today to today's sermon, The Seductive, Violent, God-Opposing Empire. Our text today has all the makings of a sensational revelation sermon. There's a prostitute named Babylon, dressed in worldly splendor, sitting on many waters. But she's also sitting on a beast that has seven heads that are mountains, and the heads are also kings, and the beast is an eighth king. Plus, the beast has ten horns that are ten future kings that will rule for an ominous hour with the beast. There's mystery. There's marveling. There's marketing opportunities for books and movies here. <laughs> this is peak revelation. But we know better than to get sideways on all of that. We know that the visions given to John are the revelation of Jesus Christ as the true King and Lord. We know that he's going to come to earth again and make all things right. So we're going to work our way through the text like we have this whole series and expose the spiritual and theological truths behind the symbols given to John in this vision. When we see the symbols for what they meant to the first century church, we will then learn what they mean for our lives today. The context of those seven churches in Asia Minor determines the meaning of chapter 7, not our own context. And once uh, that has a whole lot to say to us, once we understand that. So as we get into the mind of those first century Christians, the first thing we notice in the text is the unholy partnership of Babylon and the beast. One of the seven angels that had one of the seven bowls we've studied over the last couple weeks comes to John and carries him away to a wilderness. He's going to show him the judgment of the great prostitute, who sounds like she's been up to no good. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and humanity has become drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. We've covered this as it's come up before in Revelation, but let's remind ourselves. In the genre of biblical prophetic and apocalyptic writings, sexual immorality is shorthand for idolatry. It is spiritual unfaithfulness to the one who deserves humanity's faithfulness. It's shorthand for subjecting yourself to anyone or anything other than the one true creator God. This certainly does include not following God's sexual ethic as revealed in scripture. But it includes so much more than that. It includes the seduction of wealth. It includes the allure of power. It includes the temptation of a life lived with limitless ease, where we set the boundaries of what is good and what is evil. The vision given to John draws on an extensive history in the Old Testament. For examples, you can review the use of sexual immorality as a symbol for idolatry, 
as ancient Babylon is judged in Jeremiah 51. The nation of Israel is judged in Ezekiel 16. Tyre is judged in Isaiah 23. And Nineveh is judged in Nahum 3. All of these references use the language of sexual infidelity and immorality to describe the worship of anything other than Yahweh. Sexual immorality is a powerful picture because it generates a visceral response in us, or at least it should. If you can think of a culture that is not repulsed by sexual immorality, then you're thinking of a truly godless culture. That would be a culture that is drunk with idolatry. It stumbles about looking for the next pleasure. It staggers through life intoxicated by a lie that it is its own God. It calls others to join it, then pointing to the group as justification for its rejection of God's ways. The prostitute in our text holds a golden cup spilling over with idolatry. She swings it around, offering it to everyone. No one can pass through life without encountering this cup. The angel then says that the prostitute is seated on many waters. This is another reference to Jeremiah 51 a passage on the judgment of Babylon. The city Babylon was on the river Euphrates and had a system of waterways in and around it. Here's that rendering that we saw last week of the ancient city of Babylon. If you saw this in person, you can see how it would look like the city is sitting on top of the river and the waterways. Down in verse 15, here in Revelation 17, we learn that this symbolizes Babylon's influence over a broad array of nations. Verse 2 tells us that the kings of the earth and the dwellers on earth have all been affected by her immorality. For the prostitute to be seated on many waters symbolizes the effective intoxication of a broad array of nations with its idolatrous counterfeit religion. The counterfeit religion is highlighted further with the description of the woman's adornment. Look at verse 4. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. Pay attention to this. Adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. In verse 5, she carries a name with her, identifying who she represents. The vision sets her up as a counterfeit priestess. Look on the screen at Exodus 28. And they shall make, a, make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. In this passage, God is giving instructions to Moses on the garments that the priests will wear in the tabernacle. It's all here, the purple and the scarlet, the gold, the precious jewels, and the names marked by the sons of Israel, identifying who the priests represent. But in Revelation 17, we see a counterfeit priestess representing counterfeit religion. The true priests of God ministered soberly, mediating between God and his people. They spent their time concerned with holiness, illustrated through ritual washing and incense. 
But this priestess is causing her followers to be drunk on their rejection of God. And she herself is drunk on the blood of the saints, those who had faithful witness to God's truth. She indulges in persecuting God's people like a goblet of wine. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? Let's read verse 5 here in Revelation 17. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. It must have been small font to get all of that on a forehead. But Babylon, the prostitute, has on her forehead the name or mark of the ancient enemy of God and his people. It's a name that's been a scourge to all who would be faithful to God, going all the way back to the most ancient history. She, being named and marked as Babylon, mother of prostitutes and abominations, means she is the source of all who would draw people away from God and of all evil. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 11, where we will read the origin story of Babylon. Genesis 11 comes at the end of a series of rebellions against God, rebellions that began in the Garden of Eden. We'll read verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The tower they were building was called a ziggurat, a step building with a shrine at the top reserved for a divine being. It's a temple, a center of worship. In the ancient Near East, a mountain was the connection point between heaven and the earth dwellers. And if there was no mountain nearby, no problem, they would build a tower. The people built this construction in the plain of Shinar to make a great name for themselves and to avoid being scattered over the face of the earth. Where Shinar was in those ancient times would eventually be Babylon. At the Tower of Babel, they were avoiding the command of God to subdue the earth, to take Eden and spread it across the earth. But while doing this, they were also uniting themselves and thus exalting spiritual beings that were not Yahweh, the creator God. They were going around God to get something that they should have been trusting God for. So God judged their apostasy. The tower is the culmination of humanity's fall. 
documented in Genesis 3 through 11. The tower is the epitome of human pride and confusion of the relationship between the creator God and humanity. A well-ordered relationship with God means to trust him and to wait for him to provide for you. But a chaotic relationship with God means to use earthly or beastly tools and methods to get our way. The story of Babel explains the origin of languages and the nations, especially Babylon. Eventually, Babylon would grow to be that powerful nation that we learned a lot about as we went through the book of Daniel. Here in Revelation 17, the woman sitting on the beast is the personification of all of that history. She is the symbol of all rebellion against God. There's a lot of graphic imagery in Revelation, and this chapter is no exception. Reading the imagery literally will lead us astray. We have to be disciplined in this, otherwise we will not understand the implications of this text unless we actually see a woman intoxicated with the, on the blood of the saints. I don't think that's actually possible. But the first century church knew that the pressure put on them by the world was to join them in pagan worship. They were called atheists by the world around them because they worshiped only one God. They were under real economic pressure. Think of the mark of the beast from chapter 13 and how no one could buy or sell unless they had that mark. The pressure of Babylon in their lives cost them something, sometimes their lives. But all of that pressure is symbolized in the blood of the saints that Babylon feasts on. And by naming the woman Babylon, the vision makes clear that this force is opposed to God, and it's existed since Babel, and it continues to exist, even to this day. Even if we don't have our blood spilled, there is a pressure that's being applied to us that we are called to withstand in faithfulness to God. Amen. We've identified Babylon in our text, so now can you identify Babylon's influence in your life? Somehow, some way, you are being tempted and will be tempted to go around God to get something. Maybe even something that's a good thing but going around God to get it reveals that it is idolatry. Babylon is deceptive and enticing. It took a vision, John being transported to the heavenly realm for this horrific reality to be made clear to him. But here in our lives, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes so we too can see the horrific reality of where deception will lead us. Babylon will offer you things that seem good. Babylon says, who wouldn't want a little luxury and ease? Never mind what the cost may be to someone else or to you down the road. Babylon says, who wouldn't want a great name or image? Never mind your God-given job to make his name great in your life. Bab Babylon says, who wouldn't want more stuff to fill the void inside of you? Never mind the cost to the world around you. We're going to see this a lot more in chapter 18. But the entire life cycle of materialism is an opportunity for Babylon in our hearts and lives. Amen. From seeking out the cheapest labor for the sake of profits, to our need for bigger homes and storage units to store all of our stuff, to the piles and piles of stuff in landfills when we replace our stuff with different stuff. 
It's impossible for consumerism to not eventually have an impact on the world around us. It's impossible for the race to maximize profit to not have an impact. I know this for sure. In 21st century America, materialism is like a superhighway letting Babylon into our hearts. As God gives this world over to judgment, we'll see that Babylon is alive today. Maybe it's something I've mentioned or maybe it's something else. But can you identify Babylon in your life? So we get to the end of this description of the woman marked with the name Babylon. Look down at the end of verse 6. And John finds himself marveling greatly. It's as if he's wondering, how can she bad, be bad when she looks so good? He's astonished. He's perplexed. He's fearful. He's awestruck at the ability of the woman, empowered by the beast, to seduce and deceive the nations. In this vision, the power and horror are on full display. And if I'm John, I'm wondering, I thought I was brought here to see the judgment of Babylon, not its terrible might through its partnership with the beast. Well, I'm glad I asked, because the angel has something to say to that. So let's reread the end of verse 6 through verse 11. Oh, it turned back to Revelation. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So here we have our second point, the lamb's victory over the beast. In response to John's marveling, the angel sounds a little bit like he's chastising John. He's going to explain the mystery of the woman and the beast and remove any wondering or fear for John, for the first century Christian reading the Revelation, and for you and for me. We start to see the symbiotic relationship between the great prostitute and the beast she sits on as the angel explains the beast, the source of the woman's power. The beast is the same beast from the first half of Revelation 13. But in this vision, we're immediately confronted with the juxtaposition of the beast and the lamb. The beast is a false god, a false savior, and the vision shows the contrast between it and the true god, the true savior, Jesus Christ, represented in the lamb. The beast has seven heads, a parody of the seven spirits, Remember the seven spirits in chapter Revelation 1 and 3? They describe the whole perfection of the Holy Spirit of God. The seven heads of the beast are a picture of the full grotesqueness of the beast. Here in, the, here in verse 8, the beast was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. Compare this to Jesus' description of himself in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. 
John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The elements are similar because the beast is a parody of the lamb. Both the lamb and the beast were, but Jesus was first. Jesus is, and he forever is. He died, the lamb slain but standing, described in Revelation 5. There, the four living creatures, elders, and myriads of angels, in chapter 5, verse 12, they called out in a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But the beast is different from that. He is not. And when he rises from the bottomless pit, he doesn't go to glory. He goes to destruction. The beast is not because Jesus, the lamb, is. The beast's power is false and the blasphemous names are lies. Think of the throne room scenes in Revelation 5 and 7. The lamb rules, and he rules now, and his rule will never end. His death and ascension to the right hand of the Father was an enthronement. The crown, the colors, the sign at the top of the cross that he was the king of the Jews, these are all symbols telling us that his gospel is a royal announcement. The true and rightful king has returned. He's conquering all of his enemies, sin, death, and all counterfeit gods. In Jesus' death, we are forgiven our trespasses against the true king. As a result of that forgiveness, we live lives that are loyal to the true king, and we're marked as citizens of his kingdom. To use the language of Revelation, our names are written in the book of life, and we are included in the kingdom that he is bringing. If this is a new idea to you and you want to know more, then find me after the service or one of the other pastors. This church would love to help you live your life in loyalty to the Lamb. When held up and examined against the glory and the power of the Lamb, the beast is not. Just like the mark of the beast in chapter 13 is the opposite of the mark given to the people of God, the beast is the negative of the Lamb. And yet, this counterfeit God is actively working to deceive humanity. Because of the apparent power of the beast, they will go with him. They will worship and serve and imposter God. They will see the futile flailing of the beast that is going to destruction. But people will be drawn to the beast for all the same reasons that they were drawn to the woman sitting on the beast. The seduction of wealth, the allure of power, the temptation of a life lived with limitless ease, deciding for yourself what's good and what's evil. The appearance of the beast is the appearance of everything our twisted nature wants in life. The beast has already lost, it's already been conquered, but its deception is at work, even today, to draw your affections and your allegiance away from the lamb. Its deceptive power will continue to the end until its final destruction. Next, the vision calls for a mind with wisdom. Here in verse 9, we learn a bit more about the identity of the beast to John and the first century readers. The beast imagery here, just like in Daniel, calls to mind kingdoms or empires. It is anti-God forces housed in political, political shapes. The beasts of Daniel 7 and Revelation 
here in Revelation, represent earthly God-opposing powers that use their authority to pressure earth dwellers to turn their back on God in order to set up their own beastly kingdoms. To John and the first century readers, that beastly kingdom was Rome. Comparing the beast's heads to seven mountains that the woman sits on was likely a reference to the seven hills of Rome, on which the goddess Roma is pictured sitting on this coin from AD 71. To the first century reader, this would have been unmistakable that the beast was the representation of Rome. And if you look at verse 18, it says that the woman is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. To the first century reader, this is also Rome. So the woman exhibits the emperor-worshipping, idolatrous, pagan rebellion against God that was practiced in Rome, and she sits on the back of the violent, God-opposed, militaristic, conquering empire of Rome. There's a symbiotic relationship going on between the woman and the beast, between Babylon and Rome. They're so interconnected that it's hard to tell where one starts and the other ends. They each represent a different aspect of rebellion against God, and they're working together to get the church to bail on following God. Next, the vision goes into greater detail on specific kings that are partnered with the beast. Five out of these seven rulers have fallen. Uh, There's a lot of speculation on what this could mean. Scholars and historians have looked at the list of Roman emperors to try to determine who this is talking about. But each theory has holes in it. To the first century Christian, the names of these rulers may have been more apparent than it is to us. But the point of the statement is still available. Seven, uh, the earthly kingdom will end, and it will end soon. Five of the seven have fallen. Seven is the number of completion. The empire is approaching its day of judgment. And the beast is an eighth. Remember, the beast had seven heads, not eight. So for the beast to be an eighth king means it rules over the seven. But the seven, the completion of the empire, is almost done. The saints just need to endure a little longer. The battle has been won. The seductive, violent, God-opposing empire, their days are numbered and they are short. Don't switch sides when the final victory is so close at hand. We've seen a lot of judgment throughout Revelation. All of it is in response. Think back to the saints in chapter 6 who call out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? The blood, the pressure, the suffering that the prostitute was drunk on. The judgment we've been reading about for weeks in Revelation is God's response. He heard their cries, and at his appointed time, he will put all evil to an end. These visions are a comfort to God's people. You will be vindicated of all the accusations of the world. You will see the fruit of a life lived in obedience. Jesus says there are two ways to go, a way that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction. So if we pretend, if we imagine that there are no consequences to going the wrong way, it dishonors Jesus' words. So it's good for our souls to spend time calling on God in the same way as those saints. We long for the comfort it brings when we ask God. 
How long will the horrors, like what happened in Buffalo, in Laguna Woods, and since we last gathered at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, keep happening? We long for the new heavens and the new earth that will be the result when God eliminates all of the Babylon, all of the beastly empires, tears, death, mourning, pain. All these former things will pass away. This is what the, revel- the visions of Revelation are moving to. This is what God is moving to in human history. The judgments we read in Revelation and see around us are God at work to bring us back to Eden. So to the first century Christians, the prostitute beast complex was identified as the Roman Empire, and they were called to endure the pressure of that empire. But what does this mean for us today? I don't watch history documentaries either, but I'm pretty sure Rome's been gone as a world power for a while now. By utilizing the symbols of Babylon and the beast, the vision makes it clear that this is not just about Rome. Babylon is a perpetual enemy of the people of God. The forces that were at work then are at work now. Babylon partnering with the beast is a category or a type that we can identify at work today. Anywhere you see power, influence, or authority partnering with opposition to God, you see Babylon and the beast. It's fairly easy to identify them when we see it in countries that make open Christian gatherings illegal. It's fairly easy to identify it in countries that turn a blind eye to radical groups that use violence against Christians. But it's harder to identify when it's in our backyard, isn't it? It's a lot harder when Babylon and the beast come to you directly to offer them to offer you their protection and services. This was that temptation that was offered to Jesus in the wilderness in our New Testament reading for today. Jesus responded to each temptation by quoting the word of God. He was not going to be caught trusting in worldly wisdom. So our application question here is where do you draw your wisdom and strength from? The lamb or the beast? Do you draw your wisdom from humanistic thinking on rights? Or do you draw your wisdom from the self-sacrificial, enemy-loving example of Christ? Do you draw your strength from the tools of the world, power, influence, preying on the weaknesses of others? Or do you draw strength from the vision of glory that awaits those who bring about Jesus' kingdom rule through meekness, holiness, mercy, and peacemaking. Those are very different tools, aren't they? Use the greatest commandment to guide you through this examination. Ask, do I love God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength? This is the commitment needed to endure the onslaught of Babylon and the beast. Let's go back to verses 12 through 14. Reread those. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. We've taken care of the seven heads, but what's up with these ten horns? To that I would ask, are you ready for some recapitulation? You'd think we were sponsored by big recapitulation with how much we talk about it. We make sure we say it every week. But like all recapitulation, this is the retelling of other parts of Revelation with a different camera angle. Like telling the same story, moving the narrative forward, but from a different perspective. This scene is the same as the one we heard about last week. This is the battle of Har-Mageddon. These ten kings are the fullness of all opponents of God. Look back, it shouldn't be too far. Chapter 16. Let's start in verse 12. Revelation 16, 12. We'll read through verse 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So we've got the river Euphrates connected with Babylon. We've got kings. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth, and out of, the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This event is the same as the event in chapter 17, 12 through 14, just from a different perspective. And get used to it. We're not done recapitulating. Spoiler alert, we're going to see it again in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. These sections describe a great battle, the last battle. And in this battle, all the forces of evil put up their final and best effort to defeat the Lamb. But the perspective we are given this week puts it very simply. The Lamb will conquer them. The Lamb is the true Lord and the true King. All who make claims of authority without putting themselves under his authority will be proven liars. And who is this Lamb? Here, sorry, who is this with the Lamb? Here we have the standard New Testament language to describe the church, the called, the chosen, the faithful. These are the 144,000 of chapter 14 gathered with the Lamb on Mount Zion. The called, chosen, faithful are also the bride of Christ. More recapitulation. Look on the screen at Revelation 21, 9 through 11. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The people of God will be preserved through all spiritual assaults. So come back to chapter 17 with me. Let's look at the final section of our text for the day, verses 15 through 18. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. 
and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This gives us our final point. Live by the beast, die by the beast. Now we see how the prostitute is a parody of the church. She presents a counterfeit religion of faithlessness where the church worships the true God and is faithful. Here in verse 15, we see again that the woman is seated or rules over peoples, multitudes, and nations. A parody of the nations, tribes, peoples, and languages that make up the bride of Christ. And where the church follows, conquers, and rules with the lamb, the prostitute is destroyed by the counterfeit authorities she relies on. This is the nature of God's wrath and judgment that we see repeatedly in Scripture. In the garden, Adam and Eve listened to the serpent rather than God, so they were sent away from God's temple presence in Eden. At Babel, the nations rejected God, so he handed them over in judgment to be subject to rebellious angels. The nation of Israel refused to be faithful to their calling to be ruled by God, and they were handed over to be ruled by other nations. God uses their sin as the agent of his judgment. As the saying goes, sin carries with it the seed of its own destruction. Turn to Romans 1 with me. This is the last place we'll turn. Romans chapter 1. This is a rather familiar passage describing the wrath of God. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts to go to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
The rebellion that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul describes here in letter form is the same thing we see in the woman sitting on the beast. Paul uses words that get summed up in one name, Babylon. Paul uses words to describe rebellion against God that get personified in the harlot. The vision given to John uses shorthand, symbols, and images to give us vivid pictures of the reality behind rebellion against God. Paul says that God's wrath is revealed, and he describes it in three ways. All three times, he says God gave them up. You see it in verse 24. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. In verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. Do you see the pattern here? When you partner with destructive things, God will give you over to be destroyed by those same things. The woman sitting on the beast trusted in the beast rather than God. So God worked his judgment through those final kings. Her symbiotic relationship with the beast was her destruction in the end. So we have our final application question to consider. Does the fruit of your life show any partnership with the world? Our text today is a precious warning to us. It is a revelation of the opposition to God and the insidious way that it will occupy all corners of civilization, creating counterfeit religion to try to draw people away from worship of the true God. Let's take this warning seriously so that we can be counted among the faithful that are standing close to the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving John this vision of Babylon and its constant effort to oppose you. We ask that you would help us understand what Babylon and the beast look like today in our lives and in our context so that we can resist it. Grant us endurance so that we can be used by you to conquer your enemies. And we ask, God, that your new creation would be brought in full soon. Until then, use our witness to draw people to you. Amen.